Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 4. And we'll be looking at verse 7 uh, this morning. Uh, the end of all things is near. <clears throat> so uh, Peter is uh, laying out this uh, statement to encourage his readers uh, and giving them another reason to persevere in faithfulness even though they're facing suffering, persecution, afflictions and troubles of a variety of different kinds. And I think it's the prospect of the future that can have such a powerful, blessed impact upon our hearts and souls, particularly when we're going through difficult times. So we read in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. Peter, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sober judgment, I'm sorry, sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. So again, he's trying to adjust their thinking to embrace the truth that he's presenting here as they're going through trials, going through tribulation, going through persecution to help them sustain a godly and faithful life in the midst of all the troubles that they're in. But what, uh, what is interesting is that he begins in verse 7 by saying the end of all things is near. And this is one of those phrases where it's interesting. We've got to understand what does he mean by it and how does it apply to us today. So I'm going to take some time this morning to try to walk through this and look at it in the greater context of Scripture. So first off, what end does Peter have in mind? And some commentators, um, the least, not the least of which is R.C. Sproul, would interpret that the end here is the end of the Jewish nation, which will come about in 70 A.D. when the Romans come in and they destroy Jerusalem, they destroy the temple, and that brings that phase of the life of the nation of Israel to an end. Uh, In my opinion, that seems hardly the the meaning here uh, for several reasons. Uh, we find that uh, uh, in verse 5, Peter has just made reference that the unbelievers will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. So these are those who are persecuting them. Remember, they're living in Turkey, modern day Turkey. So they're far removed from Jerusalem. And yet those who are persecuting them, their enemies living in Turkey, are going to one day give an account and are ready to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. That's got to be the final judgment. So that's in his mind. So when we come down to verse 7, the end of all things is near. I don't think the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple really measures up to this expression, the end of all things is near. So I think it's probably obviously in connection with what I would say is the second coming of Jesus Christ. There are some verses in Scripture, though, that 
that uh, speak of the Lord's coming that I think do have 70 A.D. in view. In the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus is giving this amazing prophecy, it starts out dealing with the issue of the temple. And the, the disciples are there on the Mount of Olives admiring the temple. And Jesus tells them that before too long, that temple is going to be destroyed. And obviously, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple factor very large in the Olivet Discourse. I don't think completely, but I think it's there. There are other verses that Jesus gave that also, I think, have best 70 AD in view, but not here. This is not the way that I think uh, Peter is, uh, is taking us. So when it comes to verse 7, and he says, the end of all things is near... And if he's talking about the final day of judgment, which he's referenced again back in verse 5, and the end of all things is near, what does the near mean? Because obviously we're 2,000 years removed from this uh, epistle being written and Christ has not come back yet. And yet he says the end of all things is near. Well, this uh, this use of the word near is something that you find in various authors of the New Testament. For example, James says, you too be patient, strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. And then in verse 9, he speaks of the judges standing right at the door, which sounds very, very imminent. We go to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 13. He says, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. So he uses that same type of language. The author of Hebrews says, we're not to forsake our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And in all these contexts, it's probably the end time day that that they have in mind. So the issue is, if Peter says that the end of all things is near, and it hasn't happened for 2,000 years yet, then what does he mean by the end of all things is near? How can he use that word near to speak of something that is being delayed by at least 2,000 years? So we have to wrestle with the language. And I think probably the way a lot of commentaries uh, would interpret this is that we have to ask ourselves, when Peter talks about the end of all things being near, what timetable does he have in mind? Is he thinking of a human timetable of nearness in light of what we think of being near? Or is it, from God's perspective, God's timetable. Now, from our timetable, obviously, we struggle with that. Peter, you said the end of all things is near. Well, my goodness, it's been 2,000 years. It's not near. What's going on? Because from our timetable on earth, we, uh, we measure time by minutes and hours and days. And we don't like to wait. We don't like to, to let things delay. It's kind of like, you know, you're going on a road trip with little kids in the car. You're going to be driving for two days. And what what do they start saying after 15 minutes in the car? Are we there yet? 
because they expect for things to happen quickly. And this is not quickly. The end of all things is near, but by our time schedule, it's not near. It's been delayed. It's a long ways away. It's 2,000 years at least from taking place. So, I think it may be that when the Spirit of God inspired Peter to write these words, the Spirit of God could very well in some of these references be imparting this divine perspective on nearness. In other words, it's not based upon our time schedule, but it's based on God's time schedule. Which means that what is near for God is not the same as what's near for us. Now the reason I point that out is because in Peter's second letter, the very same issue comes up. Because in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4, and in this context there are mockers who are following their own lusts, and the mockers are saying, where is the promise of His coming? You Christians have been saying that Jesus' coming is near, but it hasn't happened yet. Where is the promise of His coming? And Peter goes on to say that it escapes their notice that God created the world long ago and then He formed it out of water and by water and He destroyed it with water through Noah's flood. And by His Word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire and the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men And then he says in verse 8, Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. So the Lord is not slow about His promise. Now based on our time schedule, we say that's slow, that's delayed, something happened, it's not near. But from God's time schedule and His timetable, a day is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day. So for him, what is near could be a thousand years is like a day. Well, that's near to God. So I think possibly when Peter is saying that the end of all things is near, instead of trying to crunch it into our clocks and watches and calendars, we can look at it from God's perspective that nearness takes on a different meaning when you're talking about God's timetable. And that may be the best way to interpret uh, Peter's meaning here. So, in spite of this, even though the end of all things is near, what the Bible adds to that exhortation is that we should be watching and expecting and eagerly anticipating and waiting for for the return of Christ. Even though it's near, we don't know when that near is going to be fulfilled from God's perspective. Nevertheless, we need to be watching for it, waiting for it, and eagerly anticipating the return of Jesus Christ. Uh, The Lord teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. And part of that kingdom would involve the second coming of Christ. Something that we should be looking for, praying for, and anticipating. Now notice again in verse uh, 7, Peter says, 
The end of all things is near. When you think about that, that's a pretty awesome concept to grasp. The end of all things is near. The end of life in this world on this earth is near. The end of all the treasures. The end of all of the things we long for and desire after that are associated with this earth and this world are going to end. The end of all things is near. All of our earthly pursuits will end. This whole cosmos will end. And we can't take any of it with us. Now Peter has told us we have an inheritance in heaven which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for us who are kept by the power of God through faith. That will last forever. But the end of all things in this world is near. One day this world and all that's in it will come to an end when Christ comes back. My understanding of it. So where do we put our heart? That's where Jesus says, you know, to store up treasures in heaven, not treasures on earth. Not saying literally you can't have any savings or anything like that. But the focus is treasures in heaven. That's that future perspective that ultimately comes with realizing that the end of all things is near. All this stuff is going to be taken. We're going to, when we die, we can't take anything with us. Ultimately, it's all going to be destroyed by fire and recreated into a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. But Peter is saying, get this thought in your mind. Let it help to release you from the anxiety and the worry and the fears because your heart is clinging too much to the things of this world. The end of all things is near. And I think Jim Elliott speaks correctly when he says, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. So Peter is reminding us of that future perspective that is so necessary when you're going through tribulations and troubles and persecution and trials of any kind. Life can become weary. And it's the hope of glory that sustains us. It's the hope of glory that as Paul says, though my outer man is decaying day by day, my inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for me an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things that are seen, the stuff of this world, but the things that are not seen, for the things that are seen are temporal. But the things that are not seen are eternal. That's what renews me day by day, Paul says. And that's the focus that Peter wants us to have. He wants us to realize that the end of all things is near. So grasp the futility of devoting your life to that which will not last. Guard your heart against the gods and the idols of this world and get your eyes up on the eternal things that are coming. 
and let that renew your heart. Yes, we can enjoy our blessings and praise God for them, but hold them with an open hand because trials and afflictions and troubles and persecution may very well take them from us. Death certainly will anyway, apart from the Lord coming back. So I want to put this, this in, the, in the larger context of eschatology, the study of the last things. Because I think we have a tendency, many have a tendency, that when we think of the last days or the last things, we crunch it all up at the end of time right before the Lord comes back. Well, that's the end times. And yet the Bible has really a different understanding that we need to grasp. That in many ways, the end times began with the first coming of Christ, not waiting the second coming of Christ. That the end times is a much broader concept in Scripture. And those who want to just compact it all and press it all and crunch it all to the end of history are not understanding the glory of what this whole concept refers to. So for example, we are actually in the last days now and we have been since Christ first came. This whole church age is in the last day period according to Scripture. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. These things referring to the Old Testament, the years they spent in the wilderness written in the Old Testament were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Paul says, I'm living in the day when the ends of the ages have come. It's come. I'm living in it. We're living in it. And that was in the first century. And yet he spoke of it being the time of the end of the ages have already arrived. John, amazingly, in 1 John 2.18 says, Children, it's the last hour. You have heard that Antichrist is coming. Even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. So John says, I mean, we're in the last, we're in the last phase. Now, hour is not a literal 60 minutes, but we're in the last hour. And that last hour is not way off in the future. No, John says we're in it now. Because the Antichrists have already come. There's already many Antichrists that have manifested themselves in his day. And Peter earlier had made this point very clear on the day of Pentecost. Remember, the Holy Spirit is poured out. Peter begins to preach to the people. They start speaking in tongues back then. Uh, the people that hear them think they're drunk on sweet wine. And Peter says to them, no, no. This is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And Joel, he's quoting Joel now in verse 17. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. All of this is a part of the last days. And Peter is saying, when Pentecost occurred, that is the Old Testament major primary gift when to know that the Messianic age has arrived. When the Messianic kingdom has come, you'll know it because He'll pour out the Spirit. 
And Peter says, so what you're saying at Pentecost is what was spoken of through Joel. It's in the last days when this has happened. Peter said, we're in the last days. So the concept of the last days is just not a few years right before Christ comes back. It's the whole age is called the last days. And I think this is important because it helps us to understand the nature of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Again, a lot of people say the kingdom is future. No, it's now. It's now and it's future. There's two phases to that. For example, Jesus said in Matthew 28, I'm sorry, Matthew 12, verse 28, when He was casting out demons, He said, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come. It has come upon you. If I'm casting out demons by the Spirit of God, and He was, Jesus said, the kingdom of God has come. It's not being offered and then rejected and postponed. It has come in power and authority. And the manifestation is, Christ is showing His authority over the demonic enemies. He's casting them out. That is evidence that the kingdom of God was operating through the power of the Spirit in our Lord's ministry. And that gift of the Spirit, that power, that authority is given to the apostles and it continues on in their era where they're casting out demons and the kingdom of God is beginning to spread. But the kingdom of God began then. It's not just put off to some future time. Paul says the same thing. For He, God, the Father rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. So every believer in Jesus Christ, there's an incredible escape and transfer that has occurred. God has rescued you from the kingdom of Satan and He has transferred you where? To the kingdom of His beloved Son. You're in His kingdom. You're in Christ's kingdom right now. So there's a spiritual phase to the kingdom of Christ. There's a future glory and consummated phase yet to come when Christ comes back. But we don't want to deny the reality of the present form, the spiritual phase of the kingdom of God. That's why I think it's helpful to think of the already and the not yet of eschatology. And so what we're trying to think of is, yeah, The end of all things is near. There is a final climactic phase with the judgment and the creation of new heavens and new earth. But we're in the kingdom now. We're in the last days now. And that's just kind of a broader concept for us to keep in mind. Now, let me add just a few more points on this. Uh, There is a word of caution here that in saying what the Bible says about the end times which we're in now, and then the final phase of the end times when Christ comes back, there's really no justification to try to set dates. There's nowhere in the New Testament that, that encourages us. In fact, Paul in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 says there's two things that have to happen before the coming of the Lord. Number one, you have to have the apostasy. And number two, you have to have the revelation of the man of sin, man of lawlessness. So those are two things that have to appear before the coming of the Lord. 
But in no place are we encouraged to try to say, well, you know, Christ is coming. He's going to be here within a year. Or He's going to be here within five years. That is not encouraged in Scripture. Now, I'm old enough, uh, and the Lord saved me back in 1972. And in my short lifetime, I have seen a lot of these movements creep up where people have started to to uh, predict the, the return of Jesus Christ. Uh, the very first book I bought after I bought a Bible after the Lord saved me was Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth. And I read that book and I bought into it hook, line, and sinker. And he implied in that book that Christ was going to come back in the 80s, the 1980s. It was implied because of various reasoning and scriptures that he had in there. Obviously, Christ did not come back in the 1980s. And then there is a man by the name of Edgar Wisnant who wrote a book entitled 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. Well, he missed it 88 times. And then you have Harold Camping, another guy that I was sort of kind of keeping up with, who thought Christ was going to come back in 1994. Well, after that failed, then he changed his tune and he said he was going to come back in the year 2011. Well, Christ didn't come back in 2011. Jack Van Empey said 2012. And all this is just saying we don't play that game. Christ is going to come back when God the Father is ready to send Him back. And we don't know when that is, but we need to be watching and waiting every day. I need to be living in light of that truth whenever it takes place. Without trying to guess, is it going to be in my lifetime? Is it going to be within the next five, ten years? It doesn't matter. It's, it's not an issue of when will Christ comes back. The issue is, are you going to be ready when He does? Are you living today in light of that incredible event that one day will take place? That's the main issue. And when you look at eschatology uh, in the Scriptures, you find that eschatology has as its primary purpose to motivate us to live godly today. That's the focus of eschatology. Now, I love eschatology. I mean, I think all millennialism is the best view out there. And there's lots of different views within the church. I love it. I mean, I've, I've studied it for decades and I'm pretty uh, strong in my in my conviction on it. But people have different views. But regardless of which view you have, the purpose of that given to us in Scripture is to make us godly today. To make us more devoted to Christ today. Whether He's the, the near is near or far, we don't know, is to have a practical sanctifying effect today. That's why in 2 Peter, again, Peter's going to say in the second letter, chapter 3, verse 11, after he speaks of the coming of the judgment, the destruction of this present heavens and earth with fire, the creation of a new heavens and a new earth, he says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, here's the point. Knowing eschatology, knowing what's going to happen, here's the purpose for me telling you this and writing to you about this is what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? 
looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. How is that impacting your day today? What sort of people should you be then in striving after holy lives and godliness because of these incredible future cataclysmic events that lie in the future? See, it needs to impact our lives today. Peter would say this, I'm sorry, Paul would say the same thing at the end of this incredible 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where he's talking about the resurrection and our future resurrection to come. And he says, he concludes that whole incredible eschatological passage dealing with our future glory and resurrection. He says, therefore, this is how it should impact your life. My beloved brethren, even though you don't know when that's going to happen, you be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil in, is not in vain in the Lord. That's how you should re- respond to the future resurrection. Serve the Lord today. Serve Him faithfully. Abound in the work of the Lord. That's how eschatology should impact us. It's not so much about nailing down the time. It's rather letting that truth impact my life today so I live in light of that. So from there, Peter then says he moves them in a godly direction. This is what eschatology is for. Look back at verse 7. The end of all things is near, therefore. It's near. We don't know when it's going to happen, but it's going to happen. The end of all things is near. Therefore, how should this impact your life? What he says in verse 7, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Let it motivate you in your prayer life. Knowing what's going to happen in the future, let it stir you to pray more. To become more committed and devoted to prayer. In verse 7, when he says for the purpose of prayer, that's literally in the, in the plural, for prayers. Public prayer, private prayer. We meet on Wednesday evenings for public prayer. You're all invited. It's part of the, the prayers of the church. But he says be devoted to it. Commit yourself to it. Knowing that the end of all things is near, therefore, be of sound judgment, sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. And sound judgment is kind of the idea of you're in your right mind. This word sound judgment is in contrast with the demon-possessed guy that Jesus healed and the, the Gerizim demoniac. When Jesus healed him, it says that he, he, he was clothed and in his right mind. And a friend of mine once told me, you know, that's amazing when that happens, but sometimes that even happens with my children. They're clothed and in their right mind. But he says this demoniac had been, his mind was controlled by Satan. And when Christ rescued him, a sound mind came back to him. He began to think in terms of normal, rational thought patterns. And in a certain sense, Peter is saying, That when you understand what's coming in the future, it ought to impact the way you think. 
You ought to have a sound judgment, a sound mind, a right mind to evaluate the world. And then sober spirit is don't be intoxicated by the world. Be spiritually sensitive. Be alert. Be in full control of your faculties. And I think these two expressions in verse 7, sound judgment and sober spirit, is basically saying since the Lord's return is near, be sensitive to the spiritual realities around you. Be sensitive and aware of living for eternity, not just for the passing pleasures of the day. Be aware of your weakness. Have a sound judgment and a sober spirit to understand how much you need God, how much you need the Lord Jesus Christ and His grace in your life every hour of every day. Be sober-minded in realizing that. And when you're of sound judgment and sober spirit, all of this is for the purpose of prayer because you need to be praying. You need to be praying more than you're praying. You need to be committed to prayer. Peter knew the power and the importance of prayer. He knew it in his life. I mean, think of the times when he was rescued by the prayers of others. In Acts 12, after Herod had put the Apostle James to death with the sword, that he had Peter arrested. And you remember the story in Acts 12. Peter was taken to prison. They posted four squads of Roman soldiers to protect him. There's four soldiers in each squad, so there's 16 soldiers guarding him. They put him down inside of an inner cell with two soldiers, one on each side, chained to them because in their mind, here's one prisoner that ain't going to get away. That's what they thought. But that very night, in John Mark's mother's home, the church was praying. And God answered their prayer and responded. Well, I don't know exactly what they were praying for. But obviously it's for Peter. Probably for protection. But God answered their prayer in a phenomenal way. I think a way they weren't expecting. And He sent an angel of the Lord that appeared and woke Peter up. Told Peter to get up. His chains miraculously fell off his arms. The door opened. He walked out that cell and then he walked out the prison door and then he walked out an iron gate that just by itself opened up as the angel is leading him out of the prison. And then he finds his way over to where the prayer meeting was. And you know the rest of it. little slave girl, you know, was just totally blown away. So that the angel fetched Peter out of prison, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. And Peter knew that. He had been the recipient of the power of prayer in his own life to do a miracle, to bring him out of prison, to rescue him from possibly certain death. I mean, James had just been put to death with the sword. And then I know Peter remembered what the Lord said to him. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. And the Lord told Peter, Peter, 
Satan's going to have a heyday with you. He's going to sift you like wheat. And what's that going to result in? Is three denials. That he denied the Lord three times. Jesus said to Simon, 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 Satan has requested permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And later on, after Peter shamed himself by denying the Lord, and he looked in the darkness of the night across the light of that charcoal fire in the middle of the courtyard of Caiaphas, and he saw the light shining on the face of Jesus, and Jesus was looking right at him, right after his third denial. And Peter was crushed with the weight and he ran out weeping. But by the grace of God, he repented, he was restored because Jesus had prayed for him. And later on, the Lord helped to restore him back to ministry. But Peter knew, he knew the importance of prayer. But he also knew the failure of prayer in his own personal life, didn't he? There in the Garden of Gethsemane where the Lord took the disciples across the Kidron Valley and up the side to the olive tree garden. The olive tree. The Garden of Gethsemane. He leaves most of the disciples in one spot and He takes Peter, James, and John with Him. They go a ways over. The Lord leaves them there and He says, watch and pray. Watch and pray. And he goes over by himself and he gets down and he goes through this inner turmoil and agony of realizing what he's about to endure on the cross. And he's crying out, you know, Father, if possible, take this cup from me, but not my will, but thine be done. And he gets up and he walks back to the disciples. And what are they doing? Sleeping. He wakes them up, watch and pray, watch and pray. He goes off, he prays again, he comes back. What are they doing? Sleeping. Again, he wakes them up, watch and pray. He goes off and he prays again. He comes back, they're sleeping. And then the Romans show up with the chief priests, with Judas leading the way. And don't you wonder how Peter for a while, must have been so ashamed of failure in praying. He knew the power of prayer. He knew the importance of prayer. But he knew the failure of prayer. And I think we can all identify with Peter in that. I think probably one of the biggest struggles we have as Christians is prayer. And I think we struggle with it because it's just it's work. And it's hard at times. And life is just so busy. And there's just so many other distractions that we have that prayer is difficult. Prayer is a battle for us. But Peter is saying, look at the glory. Look at the eschatology. Look at the fact that the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of Sound judgment and sober spirit for prayer, for the purpose of prayer. We need to pray. And so I want to give you just 
a few encouragements for those who struggle in prayer. Because I think we need that today. The first encouragement is just to consider the privilege of prayer. Think of what we get to do when we pray. Now by nature, we're children of wrath. By nature, sin has separated us from God. There's an alienation. The Scriptures even say that the prayers of the wicked are an abomination to God. So we have no right to pray. God would not hear our prayers because before we were saved, we were wicked in His eyes without Christ. And yet He has saved us. He has redeemed us. We've been adopted into His family. And now He gives us the great high privilege. Our own birthright is that now we can pray and call God our Father. This is the God that created the heavens and the earth that we sung about earlier. This is a God that created everything by His power and glory and majesty. And He has redeemed us through the blood of the Lamb. And me and you as a finite, redeemed sinner and creature have the privilege to have fellowship and talk with the Creator of all the cosmos. Is that not a privilege that we have that's been entrusted to us as the children of God? In prayer, we must not take it as it's some small gift or privilege that we have because think of the price tag on the privilege of praying. The expensive price tag that had to be paid for you and I to have the privilege to call God our Father and not our Judge. And that is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. When He cried out, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? When as our substitute, God took our sins and laid them upon Jesus Christ and justly punished Him for all of our guilt and all of our sin. He bore the curse of our sin. He suffered the full penalty and weight of our sins. That we who repent and believe in Him might have the privilege of calling Him now my Heavenly Father. What a privilege. What a glory that Christ has died on the cross for our sins and opened up a new and living way to the very throne room of God. We have a great high priest who has made propitiation for our sins. He has removed the wrath of God. But on top of that, he can sympathize with us because he was tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. And so what a privilege. As the author of Hebrews encourages us with, therefore, because of our high priest who can sympathize, because of our high priest who made propitiation, that is, he removed the wrath of God from us by bearing it himself on the cross. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's our privilege that we have. What an incredible privilege. We should not neglect that. It's a high calling indeed. Well, we still struggle. But also by way of encouragement to us, the Lord has given us the Holy Spirit who helps our weaknesses. We don't know what to pray for. We don't know 
how to pray at times. Sometimes we're struggling just to pray at all. But He has given us His Spirit, the Spirit of adoption, the Spirit of His Son, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. We have help in praying. We struggle in our prayer life, but that's part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, we can quench the Spirit. We can grieve the Spirit in His ministry to to pull us more into a prayer life that pleases the Lord. Oftentimes, our our souls can become almost spiritually stagnant and, and numb and lifeless. And we don't pray very often because we're not in fellowship with God. And we've quenched the Spirit so that the Spirit's drawings and motivations for us to pray have grown weak. Now the Spirit moves in sovereign ways and He also moves in ways that we can resist. It's almost like the, the child of that Elisha, the child that died and, and the mother called Elisha to come in and the little child was laid out and he had died and Elisha came up to that child and stretched himself out over that child's body face to face, hands to hands. And got up and then came back and did the same thing again and the, and the breath came back in that child. And he came alive. And the Spirit of God can do that. He can help us to pray when we've neglected it. He can move in and impress His life, His grace into our souls so that we, we do pray more. So we almost need to pray, oh God, give us more grace that we can pray. Give us more of Your Spirit who will stir up this spirit of intercession within our hearts more. Because Lord, I struggle in my prayer life. Help me, Father. And that's a prayer that we should pray because we need the, the grace of the Spirit to help us to pray. We need to pray for God to send more of the praying grace of the Holy Spirit to revive us. Just like Elisha laying out on that little boy. And God used that to revive life back in that person, that little boy. He's also helped us in praying just by, you say, well, I don't know what to pray for. I don't know how to pray. Well, He's given us examples of prayer. The Lord's Prayer. It's a wonderful prayer to study. If you're struggling in prayer and you need help, just pray through the six requests of the Lord's Prayer. And it will rejuvenate your prayer life if you begin to pray. And there's so many great prayers in Scripture to teach us how to pray. Well, and then finally, the blessings of prayer to encourage us to pray. Peter knew what it was like to fail in prayer. I certainly know what it's like to fail in prayer. We need encouragement. And sometimes knowing the blessings that come with prayer can help us. One of them is just the joy of answered prayers. It's a great motivation. When God answers your prayer, I mean, it can bring the joy and a thankful heart and that in and of itself will cause you to want to pray and praise and give thanks to God. If you never pray, then you never see any answered prayers and you'll miss out on the joy of answered prayers. Closer fellowship with God. 
We don't realize how the Scriptures tell us that prayer is a delight to God. God delights in our prayers because He delights in a relationship with us. He wants more of that. He wants more of that relationship, more of our praying to Him, our communion with Him that is so vital to a life of prayer. And you say, well, I've been struggling too much in my prayer. I hardly ever pray at all. What do I need to do? Well, just remember the prodigal son. You think, well, you know, I've, I've, I've been so negligent in this spiritual discipline that the father's lost interest in my prayer life. When the prodigal son came back to the father, how did the father respond when his son came back repentant? He rejoiced. He had a great feast. He ran out and embraced Him. And you think our Heavenly Father will not do that? I don't care how how long you've struggled in your prayer life. I don't care how difficult it's been. When we repent and we come back to the Father, the Father delights in the prayers of His children. The Proverbs tell us that. It encourages us. The prayer of the upright is His delight. Proverbs 15, verse 8. Confess our sins of neglect and go home. Like the prodigal son. Go home. The Father will welcome you. He delights in the prayers of His children. Another blessing that comes from prayer is that when we start praying for other people, it draws out the love and unity of God's people when we pray for one another. It's a great blessing. So when we pray for each other, it just draws and develops that relationship, that love, that unity with God's people. It also lifts our burdens. You know, Peter later on in chapter 5 is going to say, cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. In prayer, cast your anxieties, your worries, your troubles upon the Lord because He cares for you. And it will help to lift the burden and the weight of all those issues that we carry with us. I love the hymn that we sometimes sing. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. So we need to pray. And it will help to lift the heaviness of our souls. There it is right there. And then finally, as far as a blessing that comes from prayer, those who pray see things change. Prayer doesn't change God, but changes, changes this world. I love what J.C. Ryle said. He said, nothing seems to be too great, too hard, or too difficult for prayer to do. It has obtained things that seemed impossible and out of reach. Prayer opened the Red Sea. Prayer brought water from the rock and bread from heaven. Prayer made the sun stand still. Prayer brought fire from the sky on Elijah's sacrifice. Prayer turned the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. 
Prayer overthrew the army of Sennacherib. Well might Mary, Queen of Scots, say, I fear John Knox's prayer more than an army of 10,000 men. Prayer has healed the sick. Prayer has raised the dead. Prayer has brought about the conversion of souls. Prayer can do anything when it's God's will to grant it. Therefore, church, pray. Yes, the end is near. The end of all things is near. We don't know when that's going to take place. But one day it will. But whether it's soon or far by our timetable, in God's timetable, it's near. We need to be watching, expecting it, looking for it. And as we have that attitude, then it should motivate us for the purpose of prayer. Because prayer is still vital. We will suffer spiritually if we neglect it, but we will prosper in the things of God if we cultivate it. So let us pray. That's the point of Peter. In light of the end of all things being near, let us pray. Pray against our corruptions, our sin. Pray for righteousness. Pray for the spread of the Gospel. Pray for the building up of the church. Let us pray for ourselves, for our families, for our friends, for our church, our nation, our missionaries. Pray for the kingdom of God to come, for Christ to come. And those who fight the discipline of growing in their prayer life will will feast at a banquet table of fellowship and blessings from God. So let us pray for more grace to pray. Because prayer is vital to the Christian life. Living in the days before the Lord's return, with all the trials and tribulations, prayer is vital. May God help us to pray more than we have before. So let's close in prayer. Our Father in Heaven, Lord, You've told us in Your Word that we have not because we ask not. And Lord, if if many of us, if not most of us, struggle in our prayer life, Lord, we, we pray that You would help to encourage us to be more mindful of the importance of prayer, to be more committed to trying to find time to fight the battle of the tyranny of the urgent, to spend time with You praying in response to what we've read in the Word of God. Lord, thank You for Peter. Thank You for the wisdom that He gives us not only to look ahead to the end of all things, but to let that incredible future event motivate us to godliness now, especially in the arena of our prayer life. Lord, we struggle, but Your Spirit is powerful and strong. So we pray, Lord, that You would help us to grow in our prayer life that Your kingdom may flourish in this world now as we await the final consummation of the end of all things and the glory to come. So help us to pray, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.